The ARA acknowledges the traditional owners of the land where we have recorded this podcast, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation, and we pay our respects to the Elders past, present, and recognise Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islanders as Australia's first traders, who utilise a sophisticated network of trading paths that have facilitated the exchange of goods, knowledge and culture for millennia. Hi, I'm Paul Zara, CEO of the Australian Retailers Association, and welcome to the Retail Therapy Podcast, proudly brought to you by AWS. Having navigated the worst of the pandemic, businesses are now moving on to tackle the next big global disruptor in climate change. In this season, we're talking to business leaders, academics and climate experts about their personal journeys and fighting for a more sustainable future. We'll also learn more about businesses and how they're meeting their sustainability targets. This podcast contains discussions of topics related to mental health illness. If you or someone you know needs support, head to beyondblue.org.au or give the Beyond Blue team a call on 1300 22 4636. Joining me today is Sarah Wilson, a globally best-selling author, thought leader, philanthropist and climate advisor. She founded the international I Quit Sugar movement, has been ranked in the top 200 most influential authors in the world, and as anyone who has ever heard or seen her speak will know, Sarah has a passionate commitment to drive a global conversation on sustainability and climate change. Sarah was previously the editor of Cosmopolitan Australia and the host of MasterChef Australia. She's also well known in the podcast world with her podcast, Wild with Sarah Wilson, which is linked to her most recent book, This One Wild and Precious Life. I'm delighted to be chatting with Sarah today and the passion and commitment she has to sustainability and climate change advocacy. Sarah, welcome. Thank you very much. Um, it's always interesting listening to your bio when you reach our age. Isn't yeah, it? It's well, like, it's just sheer, sheer years on the planet, that's this, all. This is true. And look, there's just more history as you get older, isn't there? So you actually got oh, no, more to talk about. I know, you can't about. deny it. You can't but deny I've, it. I've got to say, I've been so looking forward to spe- speaking with you. And I know we've um, we've met in our previous lives when you were at magazines and I was in department stores. And I mean, you've had such an extraordinary career to date in terms of the work you've done in the media and social activism. You've written numerous books tackling top like food waste, anxiety and climate change, that takes incredible passion and motivation. Was there a turning point in your life when you thought, I need to make a difference, I need to empower others? Yeah, my mother would say I was like this from a very young age. Um, I think I tormented my parents with all the various things I used to get worked up over. Um, And I I apparently told my mother I was going to be the first female Prime Minister Uh of Australia when I was seven, either that or a nun. So there's still hope for me (laughs) of being a nun. Um, But, yeah, there's always been this fire in my belly. I I don't know where it came from. Um, It's not that my parents were engaged in this sort of way. They're certainly intelligent, but we grew up in the country. I didn't have access to lots of influences, you know, and Mm. went to a public school and... um, But, yeah, I've always got worked up over things. And also I get fascinated. So once the internet was invented, I mean, off I went. I would go down rabbit holes and and look into things. But my parents did have some sort of impact, I suppose, to this extent in that they weren't very well off and we lived in the country and we lived in a subsistence way. So it was a semi-subsistence living, which is really hard to say when you've got a slight lisp, as I do, Um, that we had 
goats for milk and meat and we we didn't go in we could only afford to go into town once a week um, to get supplies and so we didn't buy anything and there was no rubbish service so we didn't throw anything out and so we lived where everything was repurposed you know dad built everything he built our car from spare parts he built the sheds from bits and pieces he found the house was built out of reused uh, materials and um I suppose that, you know, that really, really had a big impact on me and um, it made sense. So I, I've not really, I don't regard myself as a radical in any way. Inherently, I think it's laziness. I mean, I ride a bike everywhere because it's faster and more efficient and I don't get parking fines and speeding fines. Right. And I I can just get things done in a, a really efficient way. I get my exercise, um, my phone calls and, you know, my transport done in one hit. Um so yeah, it's 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 sort of grown and grown. I found myself in mainstream media. I was a news limited journalist. I was a I was at the press gallery at first um, as a political journalist. Then was, did a cadetship with the Herald Sun, and so then of course you mentioned I was an editor of Cosmopolitan. That happened when I was twenty nine, and then hosted a range of very mainstream shows. So I've worked in the mainstream, but I've always maintained these ideas and I've pushed them with everything I've done. Um, so I guess it was tenacity. That probably because I mean I tell you what working for mainstream media they'll try to tear it out of you. Of <laughs> you know? Well, and also maybe a curious mind because it sounds like you know you've yes. always been curious and that's actually had a massive impact. But I, I sort of want to talk a little bit about your childhood because it sounds like to me that you know life for you back then is something that you did, uh, although it was a simple life. It, it's stuff that you've really has stayed with you and in fact has been embedded in you culturally. You live a sustainable life today and in fact may, maybe um you know if you think about magazines most of that's about selling advertising often although you're on the editorial side you know what drives magazines is 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 advertising selling people often things that they don't need um but they want um and i i guess that there would must have been a point where there was this you know opposing um set of values that may may have sort of hit you at some point to say well actually this is not who I want to be moving forward. Yeah, I was always having, I always found myself with a foot in two camps and, you know, that divide does play its toll, you know, like I, I I did have a conflict from time to time. And look, to be clear, when I was editor of Cosmo, when you're an editor of a magazine, I would say a good 50% of your work is attending to advertising revenue Mm. and the bottom line. I mean, that's part of the job. You become a really good salesperson. That said, while I was torn and my ideas were conflicted and so on, I'm a realist. I live in a world where consumption is the model that we are a part of. Um, We do need to buy certain things. We live in an economy that is growth dependent. I accept all of these things and I still think there's room to do things far more artfully. So that's what I've focused on. I, I very much... Uh, read and absorb the work of people who are far more radical than me and and really push for systemic change. But I'm also a realist. I realise that that's not going to happen fast enough. We're going to have to work with the system we have. And I've always had that approach. So 
you know, I was working with all these different advertisers, you know, who were selling handbags, let's say. Mm. I've never owned a handbag in my life. It's the, <laughs> most, it's the most hilarious you, thing. How, you'll be the first woman I've ever met that does not I've own I've never a owned one. I have satchels and, you know, backpacks and things like that. <laughs> and when I say satchels, I mean the satchels that you get given, you know, at some political launch yeah. or some, you know, <laughs> with some ironic message on it. Um yeah, no, I've, I've managed very, very well for 48 years, actually. So, but um, yeah, I think I've always been, I think that's my art. I think that's what I do. I know I do well at this stage. I can say that I can tread the line. Mm. I know how to communicate some of these really important messages in a way where I can shift the status quo without disrupting things and making it too overwhelming. Mm. And so that's that's the world the world I've tried to live in. But at a personal level, yeah, it takes its toll. But I just choose to live the way I live and try to make it more charming than the status quo. And that's how change will come. Yeah, and, and understand. I've been watching your career closely, and I do know that you live a minimalist life, which is something you cover a, a fair bit in your most recent book, this one wild and precious life. I'm curious to know what's that, what that's like for your you personally, and why it's a philosophy that's so important to you. Yeah. Well, it's really important to me because it makes sense and it makes sense at a climate level, a sustainability level. I mean, we in the West here in Australia, we consume the equivalent of between five and seven planet Earths in resources. I mean, that we can't we can't operate that way. Now, of course, we rely on the global south, the poorer countries, you know, the developing nations to consume far less than that for it to, to weigh up. But of course, these developing nations are developing hmm. and we're going to be reaching a point where we're all going to be consuming way more than we can. So it makes sense for me. I, I'm very pragmatic. It makes sense to consume a lot less. But really, to be honest, like I mentioned before, for me, it's an elegant way of living. It's 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 a choice. Hmm. And so what does it look like? I don't own a car. I ride a bike everywhere. Um, so it maintains my fitness without, it, you know, having to be yes. a painful process of going to the gym each day. Um I shop and I buy quality stuff. So if I buy something, it'll be a it'll be a good quality brand. I'll spend the money, the appropriate amount of money on it. And I love fabric. I used to work in fabric stores in home yardage and Lingcraft when I was a teenager. And so I buy very good quality fabric. So that'll last me 20 years. I've got clothing from when I was 18 that I wear every season. Wow. Or sorry, every year. And um I hand wash. Um, and I just buy what I need and I replace it as I need to. And I don't buy more than I need to. So yeah. I would say most people's wardrobes are filled with stuff that they never wear and they wear about 10% on repeat and, and love those particular items. I live to that mantra. I only have the 10% in my wardrobe. Mm. I don't have all the other guff. Um, but, yeah, and, and it really trickles down to everything. So washing powder. You only need to use half a scoop. Choice Magazine did a big study some time back and said it's just as effective. Um, and, in fact, I use soap berries, which are these wonderful berries that you add essential oil to and you throw it in the machine and it washes just as well and then you can compost these, these you know, these berries afterwards. Um, I, What else do I do with food? Food waste, um, if food waste were a nation, it would be the third biggest carbon dioxide emitter after China and the US. Wow. I mean, it's that big. And we as consumers are the biggest food wasters. So it's not restaurants, mm. it's not the farmers, it's not the supermarkets, it's us. And in fact, we would go a long way to solving the climate crisis if we all halved our food waste. Yes. I mean, it's not a big ask. So 
I I don't peel my vegetables. I if I'm making a smoothie, I throw the whole I'll strawberry think, yes. in. There's just simple things like that. And really, again, it's common sense and it's practical. It goes back to what our grandmothers and our great-grandmothers used to live Mm. by. We're not reinventing wheels. A lot of what solving the climate crisis is about is going back to an era where there was a nice sweet spot. We were living in comfort and we were living within the planetary boundaries, Mm. you know, and that is possible. Now it's going to have to take a little bit of extra work because we've done so much damage. There is so many so many CO2 emissions in the atmosphere and we've got to draw down. All of that's possible. Um but the big big factor is we've got to consume less. We've just got to consume smarter. Yes. Um and and have stuff that lasts. And as you would know, I'm sure you're covering this in in other episodes of the podcast. There are incredible initiatives by retail to find better ways to keep growth but not um at the expense of these planetary boundaries. Yep. There's wonderful solutions. Absolutely you know, agree. We- and I think, mm. I mean, what you talk about too there, Sarah, is, is, is really a mindset that's um, – uh, uh, it, it's it's what we're seeing in, in the new world of consumerism where people are what we call purposefully shopping, the shopping with purpose. So they're, you know, they're, they're not um, – you know, they're not buying, you know, necessarily – they go for investment pieces like you mentioned when you're buying fashion items so you know that are not sort of linked – that are so not so fashion susceptible that they can have a much longer lasting uh, impact and, and – what a great motivation to keep your body in shape because, um, you know, you get to reuse and reshop your wardrobe many, many times, I guess. And that's what we're seeing in a lot of the way consumers are thinking. And, you know, and I think you've led the charge there and you've, you know, it, it's almost having that post-war mentality without the, although that's probably not a good example because there is a war going on, but I guess it's, it's that, that mindset around actually resources being scarce and that, um, we get to appreciate, um, everything that we're consuming, uh, and we're not just taking things for granted. Yeah, I mean, I think what you're referring to is the rationing. The rationing of food and 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 resources was really pivotal to the war effort. But I think there's a, you're, there's, you're absolutely right. There's a lot of people calling for a revival of rationing because we actually found ourselves at our happiest. I mean, there's been lots of studies that have been done during the rationing period. In London, there were bombs dropping all over the place. But it's been cited as the happiest time in British history um, because of the camaraderie, the the rise into something bigger than ourselves, and also the idea of working within sort of boundaries, being bound by rationing. And um, I don't think it's such a bad idea, you know, to, to actually think about things in those terms. We don't mind. In fact, we respond really well to efficiency. Humans love efficiency and we love being, um, you know, you look at children, children are at their happiest and most creative when they're given an old toilet roll and some paddle bop sticks and some dirt and a bit of glue, you know, that's when they get fully creative. When you start giving them all these really complex toys, they lose interest really fast. And humans as adults, we're exactly the same. We actually are at our best when we're fending with less. We've got to actually flex and tune ourselves and that's when we get really creative. Um, And that's what's missing. Our abundance has led to a certain flaccidity in our innovation as well. Yes, so yes. I'm, I'm getting off topic here. No, no, but no, but it's it's all it's, very useful because I, I also mm. know, I mean, just reflecting as you're talking because I, I know that the times when I've been, when I was running a department store and, in fact, it was it, a lot of the um, 
cost efficiencies come from doing with, with less and less resources. And in fact, the creativity actually was completely spurned. When you've got lots of money that's wasted, you never, it doesn't, um, drive creativity because you don't need to be creative with, with, uh, limited resource. When it's only limited resources that makes you creative. So completely understand the concept you're talking about and something that we should all get to understand a little bit uh, further. AWS is committed to building a sustainable business for our customers and the planet. To drive collective cross-sector action on the climate crisis, we co-founded the Climate Pledge with Global Optimism on the conviction that businesses are responsible, accountable and able to act on the climate crisis. To find out how AWS can support you to modernise your business to reach your organisation's sustainability goals, head to the link in the show notes. I, I want to come back to your book, This One Wild and Precious Life. It's a very moving and emotional read covering things like COVID, racial inequalities and climate change. Why did you write it and what's the impact been like? Yeah, I wrote it because I was despairing. I was overwhelmed. I couldn't find a hopeful path through the current discussions or the the discussions that existed at the time. And it really felt hopeless. And I didn't feel intuitively that that's where it needed to land. I wanted to find a way through it that was far more productive because I needed to be driven, and this is probably my magazine background coming through, that we as humans only shift when we present a sexier version Mm. of something. You know what I mean? Yes. It's got to be sexier than the status quo. Otherwise, we don't change. And that's what I felt was missing from the climate debate, but also from what was happening more broadly, you know, political fragmentation, because, of course, I wrote it right in the middle of all the Trump stuff. COVID hit, Black Lives Matter hit. I was writing it in real time. It was very meta. It was meta, meta. (laughs) And um, which was wonderful. It put more my theories to the test, you know. And we were sort of getting further and further away. I've been a climate activist of sorts in one form or another yes. most of my life, ditto a feminist. I've been vocal and active in these realms. And I just couldn't believe we were still going over this same old ground. Mm. And the thing that's missing, and I'm giving away the premise to the book here, but it's kind of written on the back of the book, when we love something, we will fight to save it. And what I felt was missing is we needed to return, you know, once again to some of the things that we know inherently um, see us engage in love and in our connection and where we're meant to be. And it's not difficult because what that thing is 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 nature. When we are connected back in with nature, we actually rise to these incredible things. And as you would know, I I go and trawl through all the studies around the world and there are literally tens of thousands of studies that back this idea um, that when we connect in with nature, and nature can be just watching a sunset from your living room or it can be going out hiking or just even lying in a park, but when we connect in with these things more and we respect them and everything, we will then... We, we, we experience things like attunement and congruence in our brain. All these psychological cognitive things start to, to take place and we rise to a better self and then we also fight for it. That's what's missing is a, is a reminder of, of that love. Mm-hmm. Of, of, and so much about our lives today disconnect us from that, remove us from it. And we, we do, in fact, crave a return to it. I mean, I, I post pictures all the time of, you know, hiking porn. I've got this theory that, you know, 
whatever you're hiking, you're not doing crass consumption, you know, because you're yes. out there engaging in something else. And it takes a long time to hike. I hiked yesterday and it and it and it was a, you know, it's a five, six hour ordeal. Um, but it's wonderful because you get home and you're fully exhausted and you feel alive and and so on. But um I think uh yeah, we we are prevented from these practices. But when I talk about my hiking, I put all these photos up. People go, "Oh my god, I love that!" Yeah, I just I I, I wish you're so lucky you get to do that. And I'm like, it's free. There is nothing yeah, yeah. stopping you from so, doing so, it. So it comes down to a bit of discipline too, because it sounds like you make time for that. Because we, we all know the benefits of um, being out in nature, walking, hiking. The impact it has on mental health is such a positive impact, particularly we've all lived through that through COVID where we're forced to, into lockdowns. In fact, our only access during some t- uh, periods, depending where you were living, um, that you're able to go for a walk. And we really, really relished in, in, in taking that time out when we, when we can. Do, do you find that you, will you block times out in your diary where you say that today is going to be a hiking day or I'm going to actually make sure I spend time? How, how, how do you go about scheduling these things? Well, there's two things. The first is, well, three things. The first is I walk everywhere. If I'm not riding my bike, I'm yes. walking. So I factor that in and that just becomes a habit and it's got to become a habit. And the best way to get into that habit is get rid of your car or at least, you know, Get rid of one of the cars in your household and force yourself, you know, render yourself choiceless um, so that you do walk. Now, the upside is that I do all of my podcast listening, my phone calls and all of that kind of thing, plus I do all of my thinking work. Mm. And as you know in in my book, I cover off the studies that show how um, discerning thought and creative thought is very linked. The part of the brain that controls that is pacified and calmed and enlivened uh, via the walking process. So it's really, uh, there's this real correlation between yes. creativity and walking. Anyway, so I just walk as a way of, of, of transport, a form of transport. The second thing is, yes, I do factor out times, like my leisure time. What I look forward to is maybe once a fortnight, once every three or four weeks, I go for a hike. Hmm. And, you know, I've got processes for that. I've got apps, all trails. Um, in New South Wales, there's a great one, Wild Walks, that you can use. There's websites that you can look up that are train stop to train stop ones. I mean, there is so much material out there because hikers get pretty obsessed and they love to share their favourite hikes. So there's great information out there. And then the third thing is my holidays are based around walking. Yes. My idea of hell is lying by a pool with a cocktail. <laughs> and I know a lot of people are like that. They've tried it over and over again. Every year they give the, the pool and the cocktail another go and it doesn't work for them. <laughs> and I just recommend they go on hiking holidays. And once again, there is a network of incredible tourism setups that are, for, you know, that do guided hikes. As, and some of the best are here in Australia, Great Walks of Australia. It has these wonderful boutique, you know, fancy hikes, yes. if that's your thing. You know, it's interesting because you talk, um, you know, a few years ago, you received a bit of attention for traveling the world for eight years and you lived out of a backpack the whole time. I mean, I can't imagine what that would be like. Tell us about that experience and the spiritual journey you you went on. Yeah, well, it started shortly after I left Cosmo. I got unwell and I I was I didn't own a lot even to start with. And I moved up to an army shed in the forest outside Byron Bay as Everybody else has done since <laughs> when a calamity strikes. I was a bit ahead of the curve. Uh, this is 12 or 14 years ago. Um, and essentially I I really didn't, and that's where I quit sugar started, is in this army shed. It was an experiment along with a whole lot of other experiments to get myself better. I had an autoimmune disease. And so I um, 
I just essentially didn't buy anything and I didn't replace it and it reduced from two suitcases of belongings to one suitcase and then I took off overseas eventually and I had a backpack and by the end of this eight-year period, I had a carry-on pack, day pack. And that was my entire existence. I had a half a single garage lockup, which had sort of, you know, my birth certificate and photos. And also, it also had my bed and a couch, which took me five years to research and buy. I will point out that Steve Jobs took eight years to research <laughs> and buy his first couch. We have a lot in common. We're perfectionists and we research things <laughs> and everything has to last and be sustainable. But I tell you, I've got the most sustainable couch ever and it will last forever. Anyway, I did own those possessions. But apart from that, um, my day-to-day existence was in a carry-on backpack, which meant that I could get off a plane in Paris, catch a train into the city, get on one of those, you know, line bikes, all with my backpack on and then travel to my Airbnb and that's how I got around and it was just so easy. I could, I was so mobile. I could get up Mm. and leave and not worry about cabs or, you know, uh, it's it's a form of freedom. But everything, my, my makeup bag was sort of, well, reduced down to a Qantas, you know, you know those Qantas yes, little the small um the, yeah makeup kit or ma- yeah, small kit yeah yeah that's right. So everything fitted in there: makeup, beauty products, moisturizers, medication, everything fitted in there. And and you just use one thing for this for everything, you yeah. know. Jehovah oil is what I use for moisturizing and cleansing and and the whole thing. You it know, must be terribly liberating because you're not sort of you know when you're not. Um, I guess you're not attached to to material goods, and in fact, the stuff that you've got, you really a precious and new treasure. Yes. And the other thing is also it's actually quite a bit of fun. Like people go, well, what do you do without a hairdryer? And it's like, well, I cope really, really, really well. I don't own an iron. And so I'm quite, all my clothing is either designed to be, you know, you can hang it and Mm. it just drops and it's silk or whatever, um, or it can be crinkled and it doesn't matter. Um, Or I literally hang it on a coat hanger and go into the shower. And it has, you know, as I'm having a shower, the steam, you know, finds it all out. Yeah. Yeah. So it's amazing how you can just get by. You honestly don't need all the things. Um, So it Mm. becomes quite a form of gamification, you know. It's sort of like, all right, how much longer can I get away with only owning four pairs of underpants? Mm. Um, And you, you can surprise yourself with how light and efficient and it, it becomes, um, I use the word elegant because it does feel elegant. It feels like you're just not bogged down and you don't need all of this stuff. Therefore, you can put all of your energy into other things yeah. in terms of you can put it into your energy. You can put it into holding your own and being steadfast and not needing all of these bits and pieces, which are quite distracting. Please join me next week for part two of my conversation with Sarah. We cover Sarah's I Quit Sugar movement, what needs to happen in the policy space to support climate action in Australia, and her practices for dealing with anxiety. Thank you for joining me for some retail therapy. With special thanks to our season partner, AWS, who can assist retailers navigating through their own sustainability journey with a wealth of practical resources. For more information, check out the show notes. Make sure you subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts or follow us on Spotify. We can be found wherever you listen to your favourite podcasts. For more information about the work we do at the ARA, head to our website, retail.org.au. Follow us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter or Instagram, wherever you love to connect. 
All of the links can be found in the show notes. <laughs>